Hi, I'm Chinny. I'm Astrid. And welcome to It's a Continent, the podcast that decolonizes history one story at a time. So we're here to challenge the common misconception that Africa is a country and essentially appreciate the identity of each nation. Um, and through each episode, we'll be exploring key historical moments which have shaped the continent. Welcome to episode four of It's a Continent. We're trying out recording at home as our local studio is obviously closed. So do forgive us if the sound quality is a little bit off. Yeah, we are trying our best with this. We've tested it out. We it should trying. be. It should be all good. It should be all fine. And I think I it's just, all right. <laughs> I decided to make a list of other things to blame the poor sound quality on other than us two. So first one being Carol Baskin. She's been blamed for everything, to be honest. Anything Poor and woman. everything. Mother Nature's Revenge, a potential other candidate. And anything else that's coming through on whatever WhatsApp chain message you're linked to at the moment, blame Whatever it on your that. auntie has sent you. <laughs> if your they... auntie has sent you, that is the reason why this sound quality is patchy. But so, we move. Yeah, we keep going. We keep going. In this week's episode, we're discussing Rwanda and its rebirth into a successful, thriving and sustainable country following colonisation and genocide. So considering uh, Rwanda's difficult recent history, it's really a testament of the steps the government took to bounce back. So for us, we really felt it was important to recognise that not only did you know, Rwanda have a comeback after kind of its genocide, but today it does still continue to face economic and political issues. But the way in which the government at the time, the country handled its comeback following colonisation and genocide was for us, yeah, quite interesting. And it's something mm. it was important to also bring that positive element um, to, to light as well, but still recognising... Um, some of the issues and difficulties that the country does still face. Definitely. Um, and Arsenal fans among you, like myself, may notice that Visit Rwanda is our sleeve sponsor. And I think that's probably the first time I've seen an African tourism campaign that doesn't involve a picture of lions. That's quite rare, isn't it? Yes, we're finally doing it. We can have other connotations other than just the lion. <laughs> you can just be a country. <laughs> We've had enough of Lion Bingo. We've actually moved on to other forms of tourism. Mm-hmm. Check this out. So whilst it's great that none of the Lion King cast make an appearance in the Visit Rwanda campaign, uh, it's kind of been, you know, looked at with some measure of scrutiny as Rwanda has spent £30 million on this deal, which for some seems frivolous as Rwanda's president, Paul Kagame, just happens to be a huge Arsenal fan. And this is all happening whilst Rwanda is receiving financial aid from countries such as the UK. Imagine that the country you're giving financial aid to is then spending, I'm not saying they're spending that money, but spending that much on your... I just want to meet my hero, okay? I've just always wanted to meet Hector Bellerin and that is why I'm spending this money. Honestly, this guy is just like, does not care at all. He's got no shame, no shame. He's just like, no, 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 obviously we're going to invest in tourism. Uh, we want to invest in tourism. We'll go for the UK Arsenal. That'll be a great one. They're also giving us money. So, hey. <laughs> what a coincidence. Wow. Wow. So proponents of this deal have argued that this came from a different pot to the international aid pot and that Rwanda is actually seeking to bring in £300 million of new revenue via tourism, seeing as Arsenal is one of the most popular 
football clubs in Rwanda. And the UK has one of the most, like the highest number of tourists in the world. This indirectly shows a way in which Rwanda has reorientated from a francophone country to an anglophone country. So they're removing their former colonial legacy by adhering to another coloniser. See, I fully get the whole tourism thing, do you know what I mean? That's how much you're trying to bring in. But I don't I don't know, there's something funny about going on investing in your favourite club. Do you know what I mean? Like it's a bit dodgy, do you know what I mean? <laughs> just a tad, just a tad. So for context, we wanted to give you a bit of a short overview in terms of what happened during Rwanda's kind of genocide before we get into how they uh, kind of came back um, from this. The genocide was one of the most brutal and horrific tragedies in recent years. We mentioned in episode one how Nigeria's civil war seemed to start a theme of genocidal acts taking place in other African countries. For many of these countries, this is a result of different ethnic groups being forced to cohabit in a new nation. So let's just put you all together and name you something new. This sounds familiar. Tell me about it, honestly. That copy and paste job just keeps (laughs) keeps carrying on throughout. These colonizers are not creative, I can tell you that. No. So in Rwanda's case, the war took place between two ethnic groups, the Tutsis and the Hutus. Essentially, these groups spoke the same language and citizens could change between the two based on the number of cattle they acquired or who they married. Tutsi originally meant someone who had the most cattle. However, when Germans came along in 1894, they gave the Tutsis responsibility. Um, Then when Rwanda was handed over to the Belgians in 1916, after the Germans lost Rwanda as a colony, after World War One, Can I just say... Handed over. Handed <laughs> over. Really, what is this? A game of pass the parcel? Like, seriously. It's like, you know there was ways like, oh, sorry, can you look after my dog? I've just, I'm just going away from the yeah, weekend. Just, that's, that's, really, that's pretty much what's happening here. This is... You just can't even believe that this was possible. But hey, it happened. Here's Belgium, guys. Here they are. Hey, there they are. Honestly, they are fully making their colonisation derby third place ranking official here now. Pretty much. And in our previous episode on the DRC, we can see how Belgium treated the DRC um, whilst it was a colony of Belgium. So, I mean, we can't really expect anything less from them, to be honest. No, definitely not. And so once the Belgians took over, they pitted the Tutsis and Hutus against each other. Under Belgian rule, Rwandans had to carry identity cards stating if they were Hutu or Tutsi. The Belgians felt that Tutsis were superior to Hutus. So Tutsis generally appeared taller and thinner with perhaps a lighter complexion. And Hmm. I kind of felt like whether this idea of, you know, lighter complexion really played on this idea of, you know, colorism you know i got hint yeah. of colorism right here but you know yeah i mean that's what happens it's you know colorism kind of looks at those africans who may perhaps have slightly more eurocentric features and then they're treated more favorably and this is something that has been going on for centuries so it's no surprise that the colonizers decided to bring that mentality over to rwanda yeah definitely not and As a result, Tutsis, despite being only 10% of the population, received better jobs and educational opportunities. As a result, Hutus built up resentment 
and they took power post-colonisation. On the 6th of April 1994, Rwanda's president, Juvenal Habiyanema, a Hutu, I am so sorry if I've mispronounced his name, was shot down by a totalitarian regime. Hutu extremists took over the Rwandan government, blaming Tutsis, and started their slaughter campaign. Between April and June of that year, 800,000 Rwandans were killed in 100 days. Tutsis were killed by the Hutus and a massive campaign of violence spread from Rwanda's capital throughout the country. The rest of the international community stood by and watched. So, wow. you know, this World War II and the Holocaust had taken place. So this is after those events. And the UN had, after those events, defined genocide as a crime under international law. So it kind of begs the question, why didn't they step in here? And mm. um, Linda... Melvin, uh, an investigative journalist from Britain and the author of two books on the Rwandan genocide, wrote, The whole focus at the time was on the former Yugoslavia. When the genocide began, the Balkans were being bombed and the whole focus of the UN Security Council was on the former Yugoslavia, as was the focus of the Western press. Even when genocide was determined on April 29th, 1994 by Oxfam in a press release, British newspapers hardly covered that story at all. So it's a media failure as well as a political one. It's just so frustrating, initially, that, you know, you've had, like you said, these two big things happen in terms of World War Two and the Holocaust, and nothing, what, we, we're not recognising this, we're not learning any lessons, we're not trying to try and stop it before it gets to the fact that you're losing 800,000 people in 100 days. Yeah. Like, yeah. what even is... What yeah. were people thinking? Why do... Yeah, frustrating that no one thought to intervene um, mm -hmm. and really stop this. Because to a certain degree, this was all rooted, if we're looking at it, from two communities, two, two groups who were similar. No one had ever really created these divides. This divide yeah. is created and everyone's like, bye, Felicia, go and figure out your problems. Like, yeah. you're creating the yeah. problem. Exactly. Should they not be held accountable for what they caused? And why does it seem that humanity is not allowed to care for one more than one cause at a time? Because this is quite similar to what Frederick Forsyth said um, in our first episode. We talked about the Nigerian civil war. Yeah. And Frederick Forsyth was saying about how um, because the Vietnam War was happening, the BBC wasn't really going to cover the war in Nigeria and Biafra at the time. And I think, it, yeah, it just goes to show like the media, the media just can't handle too many <laughs> Too many news at once, too much. We can only do one at a time. But I mean, as we know, there has been one news story that's been going on for the past God knows how many days. So as we know, the media can only report one story at a time. And I'm feeling that right now. Oh my gosh, tell me about it. Can't get away from it. I just cannot escape it. So the aftermath of the Rwandan genocide saw economic and political disarray across the country. Its physical and social structure was now non-existent with the destruction of all government and social institutions. Two million Hutus fled Rwanda and the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda was formed to prosecute those responsible for the genocide. The International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda is also known as the ICTR. It was found that some of the trials held under the ICTR were essentially a political whitewash. Rwanda could have been a failed state. However, its government can and should be used as a model for nations seeking reconciliation. The following stats go to show the lengths of Rwanda's development since the conclusion of the genocide. 
Life expectancy increased by 100% in 20 years, essentially doubled. One million people had been lifting out of poverty. Women had become the majority of legislators. 95% of people had health insurance. It became one of the safest places to live and citizens were living longer with better education prospects and healthier lives. I think it's incredible just how much they were able to achieve in such a relatively short space of time. Like, Mm. bear in mind, this was, you know, the genocide happened in the 90s and, you know, within that 20 year time period following it and everything, they were able to literally really help to, yeah, come back and bring themselves out of all of this out of this situation um yeah i think is is amazing yeah it's it's crazy that they were able to rebuild their rebuilding after the war was just happened on such such a crazy timeline um this is probably just under a generation and already they're doubling life expectancy which is just madness so we're going to go through some of the policies and the ways in which the country was rebuilt. So to reconstruct Rwanda, an emphasis was placed on nurturing a shared national identity, essentially restoring the country to what it was before colonialism, where there were no strong divides between the Hutus and the Tutsis. As mentioned earlier, there wasn't much of a difference between the two groups until the Belgians came along and started pitting them against each other. The Rwandan government decided to draw on aspects of Rwandan culture and traditional practices to enrich and adapt its development programs to the country's needs. The result is a set of homegrown solutions, and these were culturally owned practices translated into sustainable development programs. So it's interesting to see that some of these initiatives that that we'll go through uh, were actually around in pre-colonial Rwanda, and uh, it's interesting to see how they drew upon their heritage when they'd practically been indoctrinated to disown mm-hmm. um, by their colonizers you know the current structures that were in place yeah and it just goes to show again similar to when we were discussing in the nigeria episode like mm. these communities they're not buying into what you're forcing upon them they're not bought into it so you go back to what yeah. you know and for the Rwandans, yeah. it was this is our heritage this is what we know and this is where we feel I hate the word most authentic self, but where we feel, <laughs> I feel like your I'm best giving, self. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like I'm giving like a self help talk. Yeah, where they felt themselves um, and felt where they could find really the best solution for their community, which I think yeah is great. Let's take a look at some of these initiatives. So the first one being Gakaka. So pre colonization saw Gakaka take place. And this is essentially a system of community-based courts where criminals were tried in front of the community, whilst also giving victims a space to speak and forgive. This was essentially, you know, similar to your traditional courts with the idea of reconciliation between the two parties, really kind of differentiating it from kind of what we know and now. So colonization had a significant impact on this process with Gakaka reserved only for civil and commercial cases, which involve Rwandans. Any cases that involved colonizers and criminal cases were processed under colonial jurisdiction. I wonder why. Hmm. Anyways. (laughs) (laughs) That was a (laughs) non-shady comment. It could be shady towards the colonizers. Mm -hmm. So this, This weakened the power of Gakaka, as whilst justice systems imported from Europe didn't stop Gakaka from operating, the number of cases in this environment really dropped. 
After Rwandan independence, regimes in power often appointed administrative officials to Gokaka. So this very much removed the community aspect and therefore eroded both the integrity and trust uh, within those communities. So, like, it's very much, you know, weakening and devaluing existing systems that they had set in place, even though this is very much, it has strong similarities to what, you know, Europe is doing in terms of having a court system. But you know what? You can't have this community feel. We're not doing community spirit here. You gotta, no. you gotta, you gotta check that. You gotta check that. <laughs> it's it's the idea of how like they're saying we're civilizing them, but actually, there there was a civil court type system in place already, so it, that didn't necessarily need to be civilized. You know. I know, but I feel like at the time people were thinking, but if even though it's the same as ours, we need to make it, it's not ours. So technically they're not civilized. We need to introduce exactly the same thing. It's a bit Ah. like, do you know what this reminds me of? Is being in a meeting, given an idea, and then someone senior up copies that idea and just rewords it. And everyone's like, oh my gosh, I'm glad that no one on this team. Oh, the amount of times that this happens. I cannot, I cannot. It literally feels like that. It's (laughs) triggered me, it's triggered me. It's basically like uh, legislation appropriation. Oh my god, so that's, true. That's a new term. I just new... coined that. Love right. that. Gonna write a think piece on that after this mm-hmm. episode. Love it. <laughs> In two thousand and two, Gakaka was revived to process millions of criminal cases that arose post genocide. So the objective of Gakaka was to, you know, find out and disclose the truth about the genocide, speed up genocide trials end a culture of impunity and really holding people accountable, uh, strengthening unity and reconciliation, and really demonstrate capacity for Rwandans to solve their own problems. In total, just under 2 million genocide-related cases were tried through Gakaka. This laid the foundation for peace, reconciliation and unity. The majority of perpetrators were dealt with in this way as they confessed and pleaded their cases. Survivors, with strong encouragement from the government, accepted perpetrators into the community and, you know, this kind of Gokaka trials process concluded in 2012. It's interesting how the uh, emphasis here is placed on reconciliation rather than vengeance, um, which is definitely what was needed at the time. Yeah, definitely. They needed to, I think because they were from the same country, I think it was important that they, like focused on rebuilding rather than being uh rather than playing the blame game i don't know that's what i sense anyway because i feel like that wouldn't have gotten any anyone anywhere because you're still gonna have to live together be it someone's in prison or whatever there'd still be a lot more it'll be more much more fragmented yeah definitely And I think that our society, um, we have a lot to learn from th- these this sort of side of things about reconciliation. Uh, you know, quite often the, the Western civilization is kind of seen as a blueprint for how other countries should operate. But actually, I think that Western civilization has a lot to learn from, you know, these type of homegrown solutions that we see here. Another uh, practice put in place was called Ibudehe. Ibudehe refers to community development through collective action within communities and is a long-standing practice dating back more than a century. In 2001, this practice was introduced with poverty reduction at its core. The process is chaired by the president of the local committee and the village leader. Residents of the community form a key part in this 
as they define the level of poverty within the village. So essentially, there are poverty levels ranging from the very least being abject poverty and then the highest being money rich. So this transforms citizen engagement with development of their village. The process is decentralised, so communities are brought together and there's a bank account assigned to each community to improve surroundings. Purchases also include livestock, agricultural activities, clean water, classrooms, terraces, health centres and silos used for store and harvest. This also increased skills within the local community. Ubudehe was so successful that in 2008, the programme won a United Nations Public Service Award for Excellence in Service Delivery. It's amazing just how community-centric, um, I think it's just a theme yeah. throughout, you know, when we're looking at Gakaka and now Ibujahe. Um, and it really helped with the reconciliation process. You know, it's not mm. just the top-down approach from the government being like, right, this needs to be done here, there, everywhere, but actually really allowing people to define what they need and really build something mm. that is suitable for their community rather than being like, we're going to do what? the guys next door are doing and imagine that actually having the freedom to decide how your community or you know local area is going to spend the money like that is amazing yeah the fact that they were able to adapt you know suited to their specific needs is something that again i've not particularly seen before um and it you know as we, it's the kind of the importance of a collective society versus an individualistic society. Mm-hmm. So, for example, here in the in the UK, you can still be on the breadline and still have a full time job essentially here. Yeah. But with this whole poverty reduction drive, it means that not just you, but your whole community will actually benefit from something, and it's specific to your needs. Mm-hmm. No, definitely, and you can really have like a say in terms of where your community is going and rebuilding really that. I think it's yeah, yeah. It's really it's a really nice way um, yeah of building that kind of community spirit and things. I feel like I'm using a lot of words I would not use in my normal day to day life. Community spirit. <laughs> community spirit. But it, it feels right. I love it. I will love it. Have you not <laughs> felt the community spirit when everyone's clapping? You not. Oh, no, I, did, I did feel the community spirit when that happened yeah, yeah. I don't have a balcony but I'm clapping anyway I'm clapping anyway so I was still clapping contributing so uh, yeah definitely and doesn't this remind you of like quite a, a couple of strong comebacks this would made me think of like Craig David comeback do you know what I mean like he disappeared and then boom 20 was it like 2019 little had his comeback and now I don't want to say he's big, but he's everywhere, isn't he? Well, I guess, you know, if you think that going on Love Island is a comeback, then um, yes, I would say. <laughs> I've got no expectations a for a comeback. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. What would be your comeback? Who's your, like, comeback person, musician? Actually, I kind of think Kylie. Kylie Minogue, that is, not the Jenna person. Really nice. She's a really good comeback queen because I feel like yeah, every album, she just disappears. Yeah. She comes back, mm, and she fits right back in. I like that. That's right. Like that. Yes, like like she never left. So the third policy that we'll look at that the Rwandan government introduced was Garinka, and this translates to "May you have a cow." This initiative delivered one cow per poor family. A cow is seen as a sign of respect and gratitude and is often used to pay a dowry in Rwandan culture. The aim of this programme was to tackle the high rate of childhood malnutrition by reducing poverty. 
A cow improved the livelihoods of Rwandans through commercializing dairy products, increasing agricultural outputs, it gave you milk to consume, and it also helped better soil fertility. Gorinka was introduced in 2006 and Rwanda saw milk production increase by sevenfold. The government also introduced an initiative where a child received um, one cup of milk whilst in school every day. <laughs> Sorry, now I'm thinking that child just receives one cup and never again. <laughs> no. To be honest, I mean, it is a bit of a re-reversal about how Margaret Thatcher took away all the cups of milk, apparently. And uh, here's Rwanda bringing that back. Giving all the milks. Yeah, guys. You get a milk. During Rwandan's colonial period, owning a cow divided Rwandans along ethnic lines, and cows were seen as an elitist symbol. Following the civil war, 90% of cattle were killed. However, Gorinka successfully reunited citizens to the point where firstborn calves were often given to a neighbour, and this just goes to show the extent to which social relationships were rebuilt. So, really just like bringing everybody together and to Yeah, I really level, like this. I really, it's so good. Do you know what this makes me think of? Like, with, I'm going to use the B word, Brexit, and how people you were either like Remainer or Lever, and people actually being quite like it was very polarizing. Obviously not to this level. These guys had like mm. a full on genocide going on, but rebuilding that and that aspect of thing was never really tackled. I'm not saying like the government needs to give everybody a cow, but I just think in terms of like moving as kind of one community was never really tackled. So it's interesting how they dealt with it to make people yeah. very much equal again. And um, yeah, it was really good. What would be your cow alternative to help level the socioeconomic playing field? Mm, maybe everyone in their 20s gets money for a house deposit. How about that? Oh, tell me about it. Honestly, the struggle is real. Following the genocide, improving the lives of children was also a priority. The government made sure that 97% of children were in primary school, which at the time was the highest rate in Africa. The UN named Rwanda as one of the top three countries for improving education access. Children educated in schools were strongly encouraged to stop using potentially divisive labels such as Hutu and Tutsi. The education system in Rwanda focused on building the future of a common Rwanda. Another significant development for Rwandan children is seen in vaccines. So post-war, the coverage of most childhood vaccinations recommended by the WHO fell to below 25%. However, within 20 years, the number of babies receiving these recommended vaccinations increased to around 95%. Also looking at women as well, after the killings stopped in 1994, women made 70% of the Rwandan population. Women were vital in leading Rwanda's recovery, swapping traditional roles for political opportunities. This political participation meant that Rwandan women generally received better education and economic opportunities. In 2003, Rwandan law imposed a minimum of 30% of parliamentary seats to be held by women. The government also pledged that girls' education would be encouraged, whilst giving women leadership roles in key institutions and within the community. In a report by the Huffington Post, 64% of Rwanda's parliamentary seats are being held by women, leading the change in terms of female representation and having the highest number of women in parliament in the world. Women were now able to own land, which meant girls could inherit from their parents and women could inherit from their families. Equal inheritance was also paid out upon divorce and there was easy access to contraception. 
This is good. Yeah, this is great. It's 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 good to see that women are the rebuilders of the nations, and again, very much community focused. And you know, seeing as after the war, it would have just literally been seventy percent of the population are women. That's you know, you can't ignore us by that point. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, definitely. And it's like you've rather than being like, okay, we'll wait, we'll just use the thirty percent of guys that we've got. You know what I mean? They were like, no, <laughs> let's. Do you know what I mean? Let's actually bring up women they and just make it what it is equal and fair and yeah no it is um yeah i love it you know especially black women empowering black women like this um it's very similar to episode two where we look at thomas sankara as well and his the reforms he made to help support women Mm -hmm. and there's definitely a correlation between women gaining opportunities and a country progressing Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Someone's definitely done some research into that. We're, we're basically saving governments. <laughs> <laughs> and companies, as they say, you know, women, plenty of women representation does well for company performance as well. So, yeah, definitely. You, know, you need us. Next episode, you'll find out I'm the next CEO of a major company. Wait and see. <laughs> Facebook, we're here. Another key kind of policy um comes in terms of health and hpv vaccination campaign that um, the rwandan government ran so rwanda is currently on track to eliminate cervical cancer by encouraging 11 to 12 year old girls to get the hpv vaccine so the goal of preventing cervical cancer is a health priority for the government and they agreed a partnership with the pharmaceutical company Merck to offer Rwandan girls the opportunity to be vaccinated against HPV, which causes cervical cancer. This was the first time an African country had embarked on a national prevention program for cervical cancer. Initially, the odds were stacked against Rwanda to achieve high HPV coverage, as after its war, the country was one of the poorest in the world. However, there are examples where the government offered a community-based approach in terms of spreading information about the HPV vaccine. So the first one being local community health workers who spent weeks canvassing their village, going to rural areas and informing parents about the upcoming vaccination. And this is really important as the village is not being kind of left behind. You know, in many countries, development and certainly public health initiatives may conveniently leave out those living in villages. So it's not just kind of like Mm -hmm. big city. That's what that's what we'll focus on. Yeah. It's really good that they like reached out to those rural communities as well, because they're the ones that probably would be the most disconnected from these sort of opportunities. Like those in the cities would probably be more educated and more likely to um, be able to access these medicines. But it's it's good that they um, decided to reach out to those guys as well. Yeah, no, definitely. And community health workers work closely with nurses to educate the population about the vaccine and being able to prevent cervical cancer. Rwanda has a strong community health worker population with 45,000 spread across every village. Primary school teachers also looked out for 12 year old girls at the local school to educate them about the vaccine. And lastly, some church leaders preached about the importance of the vaccine weeks before it arrived in the local village. And the church continued to use kind of drama to depict scenes of cervical cancer's impact. Here again, education is key. And also the Rwandan government had to counter, obviously, other rumours about the vaccine causing infertility, which weren't true. So they were really there, like, I think the great thing is by making sure that everybody was 
moving at the same pace, you're able, they were able then to kind of counteract anything that wasn't basically fake news. Yeah. They were, they were, you know, against those WhatsApp rumours from early. So mm-hmm. that's, that's a thing. People need to stop forwarding those WhatsApp messages, honestly. Gosh. <laughs> Having to re- re-educate my mother on the internet. <laughs> oh, man. It's too much. It's too much. In 2001, Rwanda unveiled a new flag and national anthem. The flag was changed because of its association to the brutality of the 1994 genocide and the old flash was a bit trash. Um, just wait till you hear what it was. Or you can Google it as well. Oh yeah, people should definitely Google because we shouldn't want people coming in here like, oh yeah, you said that the, you said that the old flag... No, the flag, it was trash, guys. Google first trash. and then and then have a debate about it. <laughs> <laughs> Someone in the DMs like, you said the flag was trash. It was. It was. It was. <laughs> the previous flag was a red, yellow, green tricolour with a large black R. If not for the R, it was the same as Guinea. So the R was basically like it was written in Ariel or something. At least it wasn't Times New Roman. So That is true. That's... That is true. Ooh. I don't know if it would have been worse if it was in Comic Sans, though. Ooh. I was definitely your Comic Sans girl. I thought like, yeah, I'm so creative. Got myself a Comic oh. Sans out here. No, it was all about Century Gothic, I'll have you know. Oh, really? Yeah, oh yeah, it just made everything just look so emotional. <laughs> I am constantly having an emotional tie. Yeah. <laughs> of course, I'm just a basic Calibri girl now. The new flag represents national unity, respect for work, heroism, and confidence in the future, free from any associations with the 1994 killings. It has no red, which is seen as connotations of blood spilt, or black, which is often seen as a symbolism of mourning and gloom. Instead, there were four colours, blue, green, yellow, and gold. The blue represents happiness and peace. The yellow is for economic development. Green is for hope of prosperity and lush vegetation. And the gold sun in the top right corner is seen as enlightenment. A new national anthem was introduced as well, as many believe the old anthem, which was adapted from a traditional folk tune, glorifies the Hutus as they fought to overthrow Tutsu oppression. The new anthem refers to the Rwandans as one people rather than along their ethnic lines. So, yeah, I've got a faint memory of learning this in school. So... 2001 yeah I must have been quite young and um yeah I, I think that was when I realized that like countries could make up their own flags <laughs> I don't think it had occurred to me that that was a thing I was like wow that's so cool someone just made this up and also what school did you go to that you were learning about this kind of thing like I was <laughs> wow I was done I a massive think... disservice who knew that Essex was so progressive I know <laughs> <laughs> who knew who knew to be fair coming from devon there wasn't really yeah the... <laughs> uh, yeah also it must be nice to have a national anthem that talks about citizens rather than god only saving one person so that's it's quite nice so, there's a whole not... population oh, okay. out here guys there's a whole population yeah just the queen then okay cool that's fine don't worry <laughs> about me then no i'll just carry along we've had a look at kind of like Rwanda coming out of genocide and coming back up and really helping the community but it's also important to recognize that the country does have significant human rights issues so 
here we're really looking at, you know, there are very much two sides to this story. And whilst on the exterior, Rwanda has succeeded in their rebirth, there have been some human rights issues which should be highlighted in order to have a balanced view of the story. So let's take a look at Paul Kagame, the man who is regarded as being responsible for the majority of these changes. So he was a former army commander who was victorious in the civil war and was the minister of defense and vice president until 2000 when he became Rwanda's president and has been president since 2000. 2000, Y2K, millennium bug. Wow. When Napster was a new piece of technology and iPods weren't invented. Imagine that. What was it then, like iPod Nano? There was no iPod, hun. <laughs> there was no, oh, Jesus. There was no, I thought you said the iPods were there. There was no iPod. There, there was no iPod. Oh, this is definitely LimeWire season. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow, 2000. This is very much a long time. We are in 2020. <laughs> Um, as much as we wanted Believe to go back to 2019. <laughs> Please take me back to 2019. Take me back. Kagami went on to change the constitution to enable him to run for a third election, winning 98.8% of the vote. Hmm, not despot-like at all, is it? No, Oh, I, Yeah, 98.8%. Yeah. And he also, get this, won polls in 2003, 2010 and with 98% and 95% of the vote. And, you know, can we be sure these are accurate and reliable? I don't know, that's a little question mark. But I was thinking about this, right? 98.8%. If I got any of these marks in my degree, even I would question them. I'm sorry. I'd be like, I think yeah. someone's made a mistake. <laughs> no, this is too if good I to get... be true. It probably is. A quote from one of Rwanda's citizens outlined the reason she voted for Kagame in a report from The Guardian, where she says, he loves us, he gave us cows, brought schools for our children, a road, and kept everything peaceful. I can never imagine having another president. May, yeah. at this rate, she's not getting another president, hun. I mean... Oh. Well, she's, <laughs> she's, happy, she's happy with that at the moment. She's happy. He's not your president, he's your autocrat, essentially. Mm -hmm. Kagame's regime, whilst he has transformed Rwanda, now has a limited political opposition, very few dissenting voices in the media, and tight restrictions on freedom of speech in the political space. For example, prints and broadcast media only show pro-government views, with intimidation, threats, and prosecution being at stake. Kitsito Mihigo was a Rwandan gospel singer and genocide survivor. He released a critical song in 2014, challenging a genocide narrative, and was sentenced to 10 years in prison. He was released in 2018 by presidential grace, but was re-arrested on the 13th of February 2020, and found dead on February the 17th, under suspicious circumstances. There have been a significant number of opponents or critics of the Rwandan government who have ended up either dead or missing. In July 2017, the United Nations Subcommittee of the Prevention of Torture, SPT, cancelled their visit to Rwanda for due to lack of cooperation. This was the first time in 15 years a cancellation happened. In January of the following year, a Human Rights Watch researcher was denied access to Rwanda and a Rwandan consultant working with the Human Rights Watch was detained and held for six days kind of got us thinking, is there a way of restarting a country in a way that doesn't compromise human rights? I mean, 
If we look at uh, Thomas Sankara and Paul Kagame, both have introduced radical changes to their country, but at the cost of banning opposition, freedom of speech, or we saw how Sankara, you know, stopped uh, teachers from striking, you know, they still need to be held accountable. If people aren't happy with the way the government is running things, they should be allowed to, you know, to be able to express that. Yeah, no, I fully agree with you. I think these guys just weren't power mad. They were like, I did this for you guys, this for you guys, this, that and the other. And I should be allowed to now, you know, you guys don't need to make any decisions. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's really frustrating because if they had just stuck to all the good they were doing, things could, you know, potentially be so different today. But, oh Mm. no, you've got to go out there and win elections left, right and centre with a question mark. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, what even? It's like, just you know, that despot life, it's just so attractive, you know? Mm-hmm. And often, you know, that's why we say in the UK that we urge journalists to always challenge the government, which they need to do right now, uh, more, as they have the ability of being able to challenge the government without ending up in a cell the next morning. Yeah, do you know I what I mean? We want to be kind able of... to have that freedom. <laughs> we, we take that for granted. You forget that we can just sit here and say that we don't like you know, people in parliament and we, we know that we're not going to get arrested the next day, you know? Yeah. And also that musician as well. May. Damn, poor bloke was just challenging something and all of a sudden you're in prison for 10 years. Yeah. Gosh. And then these mysterious circumstances and there is actually a list, um, we'll probably, we'll post it in the episode notes of all the um, people that have been recorded because who knows, there might be people who haven't been recorded who um, have either gone missing or have died because they spoke up uh, against the Rwandan government. And it was going so well, but here we are. As we've seen, obviously, Rwanda has a very, you know, again, that kind of Jekyll and Hyde. It has this massive kind of genocidal um, history. And then also these human rights issues. It's tried to come back, but at the same time, these issues very much still remain within the country. But did it have to take a brutal genocidal war for these types of reforms to have taken place? You know, just going back to what yeah. we're looking at, Gakaka and Ubedehe and kind of HPV vaccination and all of that, does it really need to take a genocidal war for those things to happen? Because mm. that's something we also saw, you know, with the UK and the introduction of the National Health Service and you know, council housing only after a war. Like, can we not just learn lessons in terms of being fair to people regardless of there not being a war? Come on. Yeah, and I know that I think a lot of people are hoping that after these current events, a similar thing would happen, that there'd be some kind of sweeping reforms that would potentially help to put people, you know, help people that are perhaps disadvantaged or slighted. But yeah, it's, it's a shame that quite often it takes for, you know, a terrible event to have occurred before the government helps people. Mm-hmm. No, I pretty agree. In this case, it's like Rwanda is going back to their heritage and their traditional practices. And is it because things are, you know, other African countries within the continent, you know, had too much time elapsed for them to go back to that point, for them to remember their pre-colonial practices? Because many of them had been indoctrinated for quite a long time. So the idea of being able to go back um, and review the way their former systems were, um, that might have, it might have passed, you know, you're kind of past that point of return. 
Yeah, I know. I fully agree. Yeah, some of them kind of when you're looking at the DRC, for example, was it just too big and so many things have happened that actually it makes it difficult. But the great thing about Rwanda is that it had such a strong kind of post-colonialist culture and it felt like, obviously, let's bring that back to really help us to move forward and come back from this. And it really, to me, brought back this idea of, you know, using having African solutions to solve African problems. And I'm not saying this always works, like obviously Mm. huge human rights issues out here. That is there. Let's not forget that. Let's not shy away from that. No, definitely not. But I do think when we're talking about some of the reforms that they did bring into place, those were rooted in that culture and it worked because it was rooted in the culture and people's heritage. So, yeah. yeah, an interesting topic with Rwanda. Yeah, it's one of those ones where, like, when I first came across this topic, we were like, oh, this is amazing. Look at this country. It's just, oh, it's just done the most. They've increased their life, you know, expectancy. And then you're like, ah, they're human rights issues. Okay, yeah. you can't ignore that. Thank you for listening, guys. We're now mid-season. Yes. Um, <laughs> we'll be <Hey>. back with... <laughs> We'll be back with four more episodes to wrap up season one from the 5th of May. Uh, we are off to get suntans from our respective London windows. So, yeah. and don't forget to subscribe so you can get the latest episodes straight to your device. Also, don't forget to drop us a rating on your podcast platform and don't forget to leave us a review as well. Five stars would be amazing. We're also on Instagram as at It's a Continent Pod. So feel free to send us your suggestions for future topics. We've already had a few suggestions, so keep them coming and keep keep a watch out. Definitely keep a watch out for the next four episodes. So, yeah. We'll see you and uh, yeah, take care of yourselves, guys. Take care of yourselves. Bye.